Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. During the Second World War, Japanese kamikaze pilots were photographed climbing into their cockpits armed with samurai swords. In the decades since, the myth of the samurai as a fanatical, self-sacrificing warrior caste has been sustained in a host of films. The samurai played a crucial part in Japanese culture since at least the 12th century, and their identity is more complex and nuanced than the bloodthirsty stereotype suggests. They were professional warriors, suicidally courageous. They were also steeped in Zen Buddhism at certain points in their history and sponsored haiku poetry. They contributed to calligraphy, flower arranging and the art of the tea ceremony. And for many years, their main role was as civil servants. In the 20th century, the myth of the samurai played a part in the re-emergence of a unified Japanese nation, from restoring the emperor to restarting the post-war economy. With me to discuss the myth and history of the samurai are Nicola Liskutin, Programme Director of Japanese Studies, Birkbeck College, University of London, Gregory Irvin, Senior Curator Japan at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and Angus Lockyer, Lecturer in Japanese History and Chair of the Japan Research Centre at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Angus Lockyer, before we come on to the samurai themselves, can you tell us something about the society from which they emerged? Perhaps the place to start is to remember that, um, like many of us, compared to their continental neighbour, China, Japan was um, very backward for most of its history. In other words, it came on later. So in the middle of the first millennium of the Common Era, you begin to see the emergence of a series of warrior clans. These aren't yet the samurai contending for power. One of these emerges as preeminent in maybe the 5th century and begins in order to consolidate itself to, to borrow a series of institutions from China, administrative codes, Buddhism, um, how to plan a city, how to write histories. And this clan is the origin, so it is said, of today's imperial family. So they try to centralize the state, um, the problem is that it doesn't work very well. And so very quickly after the 7th and 8th centuries, what you begin to see is power flowing away from the center. Um, the center kind of turns inward on itself. It becomes very aristocratic, um, some would say effete culture. And so authority gets privatized. It flows out into the countryside. It flows into kind of private family disputes and things like this. And this is the environment of a somewhat decentralized, fragmentary archipelago, if you like, that the samurai come to prominence. So they're the struggling little island offshore, really. Um, yes, there are comparisons one can draw. <laughs> um, so we have this warrior, these warriors emerging as the centre can't hold, and um, the young Irish regards go to the country, establish their own little mini city-states or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever we want to call them. How did the samurai come out of this um, cluster mm. of rural warriors? The sources we have are sources about property disputes and things like this. And what seems to have happened um, is that the samurai emerged through a kind of confluence of three different streams, if you like. One is the people who were always there in the countryside. There were always warriors in the countryside enforcing their authority over their own little patch. And one of the things that happens in this privatization of authority is that you get very complicated kind of property chains developing. So a cultivator needing a little bit of protection, turning to a local warrior for that protection. And the local warrior then kind of attaching himself to a kind of chain of authority that leads all the way to the capital, maybe through a Buddhist temple or maybe to an aristocrat eventually. So that's one thing, these, these kind of property managers, if you like, who know how to wield a sword. 
it's a kind of protection racket, if you like. That's that's one that's one strain. The other is people who are sent out from the center to kind of try and keep some kind of control in the countryside. So somebody who might be appointed a governor or some kind of official, who again begins to aggregate authority in as much as the center isn't really exercising oversight. That's the second. The third is interesting. The third is kind of the endless problem in aristocratic societies of people breeding too much. And so an elite spawning too many people and not having jobs for them. And so you get the emergence of two big clans. The names of these are very famous, the Tyra and the Minamoto. And these names are kind of uh, depositories for superfluous elite sons, really. And again, they go out to the countryside. And beginning very early, actually, in the ninth century, we begin to hear stories about these people kind of causing problems, usually in the east or up north, which is where Tokyo is now, but at that point was pretty much beyond the pale. Nicola Hinskudin, can I come to you then? <laughs> Shift fast forward to the 12th century. There was a decisive but turned out to be, as I understand, a decisive battle between these two clans, and the Minamoto won. Um, how did that affect the role of the samurai? The Minamoto being uh, victorious at the Battle of Danuura, finally over the Taira, and uh, drowning the crown prince together with his Taira protectors, then moved the military headquarters to Kamakura, close to what is today Tokyo. And by shifting the military headquarters and with it really the political power center, as well as the power over taxation incomes and so on. It further preempted the central authority of the imperial household and the emperor. And at that time, what was really tremendously important, um, because there were so many, as Angus said before, so many different military clans, was to form alliances that would allow strength and concentration of power in the hands of the Minamoto. And uh, it's only then that samurai, almost as a profession, namely as those who serve these military leaders emerged. You use that phrase because the word means to serve the samurai, yes. And they started to come forward. How did the establishment of a shogun affect their status? Can you tell listeners what a shogun is? The shogun is basically the general Uh, the main general of the (laughs) military uh, system. And Minamoto Yoritomo declared himself to be then the shogun, not least because also in his hands then eventually rested the diverse alliances between groups. But it was to shift very quickly from the 13th century onwards, going to other military clans. Where are the samurai now under the minimum? Do people say, ah, this is a caste? Are they established in a much more more cohesive way than before. Yes, because they were accepted then, as it were, as a professional group and also in terms of a social hierarchy. They were climbing up very quickly the social hierarchy, so it became a clearly determined hierarchical group that was above peasants, artisans and so on. Can you give us a sense of how the samurai is developing characteristics of a samurai so we can talk to them as talk about them not just as people with horses and swords but a caste a group a force they are very much still the warrior class they are enforcing the rule of the country under the sword and the the the, the, the sword is an extremely important symbol and weapon um the sword also being one of the three imperial treasures so there's a there's an iconography that goes through that as well but they're also developing a culture. They are the military, but they form, if you like, their own military aristocracy. 
They're far removed from the imperial court in Kyoto, but they're starting to adopt their own rights as well. They're also becoming patrons of the arts and patrons of artists. There's a great demand. I mean, we, I think when we think We're about... We're still San- talking 12th, 13th century. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Certainly from the 12th century. Yoritomo in particular, there are wonderful, um, there's a wonderful painting of Yoritomo in court-style robes, whereas you know, 10 years before this painting, he would have been in full armour. So they were... They were aristocrats, they were military aristocrats. Were they a caste? Could you just say, um, I've got enough money, I'm going to become a samurai, or did you have to be born into it? Um, You really had to be born into it. In later centuries, yes, you can buy yourself into it, but at the period that we're talking about, no, you're part of that class. And expanding what Anger said earlier on, these these, uh, families that grew up in the provinces, you get this lord-vassal relationship developing, um, allegiances based on loyalty, based on kinship and blood, but it, it moves on beyond that. So I don't really know how a caste develops, how a clan develops um, but you're getting these family groupings with um, loyalty. Loyalty is terribly important to the samurai um, at this point, although some question the, the actual status of that loyalty, whether it was true loyalty or whether it was loyalty as long as your lord can actually afford to protect you and actually give you the benefits. But arms and armour are still very, very important and it's the samurai who have this. They decide what they need in the way of armour and we always think of the samurai as depicted as the higher echelons. Can you let's get to their sort of core purpose, the warriors? What what were their customs on the battlefield? Were they distinct uh, and and first of all, secondly, how effective were they? Um, I think they probably were fairly distinct. I mean, I mean we we don't have very many records of uh, warfare. What we have are what are called the gunki monogatari, the war tales. And these, of course, are always written after the event, and they, they can be rather romanticised. Evidence tells us that there weren't necessarily pitched battles, but individual skirmishes, um, often prefaced by a declaration of lineage, ujibumi or yomu. So when you go out onto the battlefield, you don't want to be defeated by somebody of lower rank than yourself. Um, so you'll say who you are, what your status is, what your family history is, and then challenge someone um, of equal um, rank to come forward and fight you. And I've read uh, in notes that you have provided and around the subject that they would paint their horses in bright colours, they themselves would wear makeup, or cosmetics were used. What was that all about? Prior to battle, you would perfume your helmet um, because... The helmet, the, the, on the top of the helmet, there's a hole through which your soul is believed to escape if you're killed in battle. So you don't actually want your, um, your, your soul to be polluted, if you like. But also the head would be taken uh, after a battle, and the perfume... You mean would, the severed head? A, a severed head, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, heads, heads were taken and examined uh, after battle. Um, because Examined for what? Um, for status. To see how could how, they tell by looking at a dead head? Uh, by, looking at, by looking at the helmet that was attached oh, right. to it, um, and also by, and this of course um, led to all sorts of corruption, by the fact that they would have black painted teeth, which would illustrate high status. In the 12th century, when the, uh, when the Mongols invaded twice and were defeated by what is known as the kamikaze, the divine wind, um, the Japanese were absolutely shocked at their battle techniques. Um, the Mongols never heard of a declaration of lineage. The Mongols came in with massed, um, uh, massed ranks of foot soldiers armed with spears mm-hmm. and, didn't sh- and didn't follow the Japanese protocols for battle. They came in with exploding hand grenades, which terrorised the Japanese cavalry, because f- um, at that point, most of the fighting was carried out uh, by cavalry. There were foot soldiers as well. But, uh, yeah, the etiquette of battle in the 12th century was completely shattered. In... Uh 
1467, the second shogunate loses control of Japan, and we have more or less a century of, of civil war. Uh, can I turn to you, Nicola? How did that affect the samurai in that period? Did they grow? Was it great for them? Um, yes, they had certainly lots to do <laughs> <laughs> at that time. Um, it, they certainly did grow. I think that decisive shift at that time is that certain regional very strong military fiefs develop so, so it was really several military clans fighting against each other over dominance of Japan with the aim partly to sort of unify Japan and get more control economic. it was really property and economic control but Angus the samurai went into that hundred years mm. X and they came out Z can you tell us what X and Z were? I think they go in as property administrators with a nice little sideline in demonstrating their military prowess on the battlefield. Um, in 1467, the center really no longer holds, and you have disputes all the way up and down the chain. There are competing imperial factions, shogunal factions. The countryside devolves into chaos. Kyoto burns. And so what happens then is it's really every man for himself. Now, you can't make your own way in the world, but what you can do is you can um, pledge your very contingent loyalty to a more effective um, Lord. So this, the term for this period actually in Japanese is often gekokujo, when the lower overcome the higher. You, you will sell your master for a, a chance to progress. Um, and so it's at this point that um, you get a, a shift from kind of property administrators to really violent opportunists who become very good at killing each other. And over time, as Nicola just pointed out, the, the units in which they're fighting get, get larger. They become highly bureaucratized. So what you see, what some historians would claim, is that you know Japan was not feudal before this, and then in the in the process in the space of a hundred years, you get a very rapid progression through what we would call feudalism, to a kind of centrally organized bureaucratic state. Over that hundred years, Greg, did the way they fought change? Yes, I mean um, the they moved from minor skirmishes with cavalry, with high-ranking samurai on on, on horseback, to. Um, following the Mongol example of um, massed ranks of foot soldiers armed with spears, swords, bows and arrows. Um, they still had the horsemen, though, didn't they? They still had the horsemen, yeah. I mean, the, the horsemen were the elite, um, and they would, uh, again, uh, the jury's slightly out on this, I mean, battles would be prefaced by uh, a charge by the uh, cavalry. But with the increasing mass ranks of foot, foot soldiers with uh, pole arms, um, they were terribly effective against the cavalry. You also get a change in styles of swords um, from the slung sword worn with armour to the um, daisho, the pair of swords, which becomes very symbolic for the samurai, the long sword and the short sword, uh, long sword being good on the battlefield and the short sword being better for um, urban uh, fighting. Um, you also get the introduction of the gun because the West arrive in the uh, 1540s. Uh, that has a radical change on warfare at that time. Um, the Civil War ended. Um, uh, Tokugawa established a new shogunate. So what happens then? After 100 years of war, in the 1560s thereabouts, um, the armies are getting very big. The costs of going into battle are beginning to outweigh the benefits. And you also get the emergence of um, three individuals successively, who we, who we now call unifiers. It's not a great term. Um, they don't quite unify the country. Um, but what they do is they, provide, they prove very um, efficient 
at uh, suppressing the opposition, which isn't only other samurai as well. It's also Buddhist institutions. Mm. It's unpopular um, movements. It's things like this. And so over time, they impose a certain kind of peace on the countryside. There's a huge battle in 1600, Sekigahara, which is um, the moment at which uh, the last of these figures, Tokugawa Ieyasu, the founder of the last of the shogunates, triumphs over his rivals. And at that point, really, peace breaks out. Um, the consequences of that are up for grabs, of course. Nicola, can you, when peace broke out, and it broke out for a long time, the samurai were forced to change their role, which they did. Can you explain how they did? Well, they became uh, bureaucrats, secretaries, administrators um, in all the offices of the shogunate and uh, basically had to set their swords aside. They were still allowed for a short time to wear them in public and otherwise only at official occasions. But they were basically becoming administrators and uh, increasingly frustrated. One advantage, in a way, was after really 150 years of uh, warfare in Japan that many of the samurai had suddenly time to get an education. Uh, and that meant um, studying the Chinese classics also for families who would not have had access that much to education on that scale before. Um, it's, uh, they are drawing very heavily on Chinese models, as Nicola has said, but one thing to remember here is that the Tokugawa are not a central authority. The negotiated nature of the piece is that um, there's a shogunate, but the shogunate actually allows the other powerful lords to keep their domains. It retains the right to move them around or to take hostages and these things. Um, but so what you have is you have uh, what some people have called a compound system. You have a central authority, the Tokugawa, who retain authority over foreign relations, for example, over relationships with the court. But you also have these mini-states which run their own business and into which the Tokugawa don't um, necessarily intrude. So there's this um, kind of competitive state system almost in which people are at liberty to experiment, drawing on Chinese models, maybe also drawing on other older texts and so on. You actually end up with an awful lot of dispossessed samurai, those who've backed the wrong side, for example, or those who've been defeated in battle. Where do those samurai go? You know, they are they are masterless samurai, and you have this group um, called the Ronin, uh, literally a wave man, who are wandering the country, causing problems, shifting allegiances all over the place, and causing an awful lot of concerns in the control of the country at that time. I mean, some some of them form brigand bands that need to be suppressed. Others actually move into uh, academic fields and become trainers of sword fencing, because. The Tokugawas insist that the sword and the brush must be studied side by side during this period, and that's another very crucial point at this time. And there's a sense in which they were trying to justify their new position, weren't mm. they? Could you, uh, would you like to come on in this, Nicola? How are they doing that? There is a, a set of behavioural rules that were set for the samurai during the Tokugawa period, which right. they were supposed to follow. But it set out, as Gregory already uh, mentioned, that a samurai had both to uh, train himself in the sword and the brush, that is to say, writing and um, fighting. What aesthetic contribution are they making now? For the aesthetic and cultural contributions, the centuries before um, 13th, 14th, in particular the 14th century and 15th century, are much, much more important, I would say. Uh, mm. Very, very important in terms of 
the overall contribution, for example, to Japanese performing arts. Uh, the samurai were, um, or rather the shogun, were the main patrons of no drama, um, which is really quite essential. Um, they influenced or inspired um, all forms of oral story storytelling. Uh, theatre forms like kabuki and bunuraku puppet theatre that developed then in the 17th and 18th century take their stories and their drama precisely from the big war tales, um, the tales of Heike. Mm. At the same time, um, the shogun and some of the samurai clan uh, groups, families, were sponsoring in the 14th and 15th and 16th century tea ceremony. And that had a major input on uh, architecture, uh, ceramics uh, and other art forms that we still know today or we believe today as being quintessentially Japanese. Angus. What happens, of course, as you move into this period when many samurai have no purpose in life, in fact, the whole class has no real purpose in mm. life, they've made their living by fighting and now mm. peace has broken out. The first hundred years of this is a slightly disturbed time. But what you do see emerging, in addition to some of the things that Nicholas mentioned, around 1700 or so, is what you can really call an identity crisis. And it's on the basis of this identity crisis that you get the later mythologization, if you like. What you have is a bunch of intellectuals, samurai intellectuals. Some of them um, make their living teaching sword fighting. Some of them start writing and pondering their existence. So it's kind of Camus in the 1700s. And they start... Um, talking about, well, what is it to be a samurai when we are no longer the people we thought we were? And you begin to see the texts emerging which define the, the notion of service. Greg? Yeah, uh, two points there. I mean, um, I agree totally with Nicola that the, the, the early periods of um, the tea ceremony and the no theatre, are they're within the, the hierarchical canon of Japanese art. But certainly during the Tokugawa period, the patronage of the arts is is absolutely immense. You see massive production of lacquerwares, for example, and metalwork. You're still producing fine decorative pieces all round. But then to go to what, Andrew, what, what Angus has just been saying about the samurai trying to define themselves, that is absolutely crucial during that early period. If I could actually read out a, qu a quote from um, a philosopher, Hayashi Razan, he says... To have the arts of peace but not the arts of war is to lack courage. To have the arts of war but not the art of peace is to lack wisdom. A man who is dedicated and has a mission is called a samurai. A man who is of inner worth and upright contact, who has moral principles and a master of the arts, he is also called a samurai. So you're having this redefining of what you are during the 17th century. And then by the, certainly by the 18th century, yeah. They're administrators. They're doing other stuff. But in the 70s, the, the, you've touched on the frustration. One imagines that, that a lot of them just wanted to go on fighting, and that's what they knew, that's what they wanted to do. And were they causing trouble? Were they, were they, uh, were they a problem? Did they continue to be a problem for 100 years, or did they all sort of, uh, in one sense, give up their arms and go into the civil service? The various kinds of bureaucracy can only ever really employ 25% of this class, which is now very well defined as a class. In, it's laid down in law that mm. a samurai is going to be a samurai is going to be a samurai. Um, they're removed from the land, but mm. they're being given stipends. The stipends are being paid in rice. The price of rice goes down over time. And so as the economy takes off, um, the population doubles over the course of the 17th century. What we now call Tokyo is the biggest city in the world from 1700 until 1825. Um, what you get is the elite is increasingly immiserated and only 25% of them are employed. 
So they have a, as as Greg just read out this wonderful quote saying that you know your your duty is to serve. They're waiting to serve for two hundred and fifty years, um, and over two hundred and fifty years um, of basic poverty, quite a bit of frustration does indeed build up. So what do you see happening to the samurai? Can the samurai be called a, a force at that time in sense of a cohesive force? Are they waiting to be called on should a war or a battle break out? Are they? Do they feel they're changing their character? I mean, what Greg read out shows that uh, it's an excellent example of the best of both worlds, isn't it? But yes. Is, is, there, <laughs> is there something else running on underneath there? Uh, yes. Well, it's it's nostalgia for to a certain extent also for the for the good old times when there were still um, wars to be fought, uh, and how they had to sort of to hang up the very elaborate armor and put their swords away. They could still train, but it was not worthwhile thinking about it anymore. So yes, there is a certain sense of frustration, and it's a feudal system. So what happens in some of the outer uh, fiefdoms is not under immediate control of the shogunate in in Edo or in Tokyo. And uh, so they are, they have a certain autonomy even when they have to send their retainers or their lords on a regular basis to Edo, which then gives way to this wonderful uh, processions. These were huge travels that traveled across Japan uh, with lots of retainers and all their wonderful armors yep. and swords. So it's in what it becomes, it becomes a kind of show. It's a constant performance that takes place somewhere in Japan when uh, a lord and his retainers are called upon to appear in in Edo. Is this keep so? This is keeping the, this is beginning the myth of the, of the samurai yes. or enforcing it because it, is this important for the for the next couple of centuries? C- certainly, I mean, if you spend quite a bit of your time dressing up um, and playing a role, then you begin to believe in the role you're playing in. Um, so there is a certain sense in which this is this tells the truth of the samurai. But underneath it, um, you mentioned an undercurrent. Underneath it, there is again this kind of statistical fact that um, you have an underemployed caste which is meant to be an elite and so you get this kind of divergence between the performance and the, the basic economic reality. I what think. does this underemployed caste do? Do they just get drink, drunk and uh, do they go um, out and cultivate their land or are they sit waiting for the rice? A lot of them. Well, no, they can't go and cultivate their land because they have to live in towns. Mm. So they're living in towns waiting for their tiny little stipend to come in from the countryside which they're not at liberty to go out and get anymore. They can't Play the protection so racket game. Up. They're yeah, um, yes, fattened ducks waiting for something to happen. Yeah, I mean, this this system of um, parades that Nicola mentioned, uh, Sankin Kotai, was was actually introduced by the Tokugawa shogunate for control. Yes. Um, mm. You know, but it was this. It was the opportunity. How was it going to control anything? Um, okay, you the the daimyo, the regional warlords who'd been appointed by the Tokugawa shoguns, were obliged to keep a residence in Edo, Tokyo, where their families were held as hostages, and maintain their domains Just out a in second, the province. Their families were held as hostages. Effectively, yeah. It's been. It was a long tradition in in Japan that uh, families were held nominally as hostages. Well, that's a fair, sir. Um, <laughs> Tokugawa Ieyasu, <laughs> for, for example, was held hostage um, in, in his early days. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was a tradition. The polite hostages. Um, yeah, Except you got, you, they got killed, uh, presumably, for their misbehaviour on the outer, uh, in the it outer could regions. Hap- it could yeah. happen. It could happen. But uh, these occasions when you had to process between um, Edo and your regional domain, as Nicola said, you would wear fantastic armour. You were then showing, here we are, we're the samurai, we are your lords, we are your overlords. But it's also 
in a way, it's a self-justification. Mm. Yeah, there's nothing much else to do. And if you think that everything's by foot at that time, it takes a long time. So, yes, they're not just sitting around the whole time. They're actually moving a lot, which actually mm. also bolsters the economy mm. along these routes that they have to take. And they're also spending an awful lot of money. Mm. I mean, the, the irony here, of course, is that in order to sustain this kind of display... Um, it's at this point that they start building the castles, which we now think of as samurai castles, built during peacetime to display their authority. Mm. It's at this time that they're crafting the extraordinary helmets mm. that we see, which were never taken into battle. They were again to, to perform the role. We, sorry, we're rushing on. We're in the 19th century. The West came in, and they wanted an increasing presence in, in, in Japan. So what were the West there for, Angus, and how did the samurai react? By the early 19th century, things are going quite badly wrong inside Japan, even before the West arrives. Um, there's an ecological problem. They've run out of land. Um, there is economic stress, social tension, and so on. And then, of course, from the beginning of the 19th century, the West begins to change. It acquires gunships. It acquires new kinds of technology, which means that it can impose force at a distance, if you like. Um, the goal here, of course, is China, um, and uh, the protagonists are the British, and the result is the Opium Wars. And so in, 18, in the 1840s, the, kind of the, the situation, the, the world map in East Asia changes, and you suddenly have what are clearly very threatening um, Western white um, opponents who are about to make you submit to something awful. And indeed, in 1853, um, the Americans, um, given the geography, this is the people who come to Japan first, um, turn up and demand that Japan open itself to trade. Of course, Japan wasn't closed until that point. There was lots of trade going backwards and forwards. Um, that's why we have um, decent ceramics in England, for example. But at this point, the Americans insist that Japan changes. The problem is... that it Changes into what? Changes into something that's going to operate on the West's terms, which is free trade, which is um, accepting Western imposition of certain kind of tariff regimes and so on. Um, becomes a member of what is charmingly called the community of nations. Um, but the problem for Japan, of course, is that by this point, the shogun, the nominal national authority, is in no position to meet this threat um, because Japan has evolved in its own way, but not along Western lines. And so the inability of the shogun, who, as Nicholas said, is the title means general, generalissimo, the inability of the shogun to respond to the West effectively means that very quickly you get an internal opposition emerging from the samurai themselves. Can you uh, address this, uh, please, Nicholas? What is the impact? The Americans come along, the West comes along, gunships, um, war at a distance, that sort of thing. What evidence do we have of the, the waves this sent through the society? The habits and the manners of the Westerners were considered to be uh, pretty bad. So um, they were largely known as barbarians, and uh, there was certainly not much... Um, willingness on the Japanese side to concede to the barbarians. There are samurai groups who still are loyal to the shogun and the Tokugawa and try to rally around and sort of oppose also the influx of Westerners, try to uh, support the misguided foreign policy of the shogunate on one side and on the other side uh, samurai groups who are just keen on getting the foreigners out and having Japan strengthened and who will eventually also form in various groups to support uh, to, to bring the emperor back a central figure of a, of a strengthening 
Japan. Greg, just to put it bluntly, did the did anyone sort of get hold of the samurai together and say, can we get ourselves back in the saddle, as it were, and take on these people? And uh, well, the, 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 yes. yes, I mean the, the, this this is an extraordinary paradoxical time because finally the samurai have a purpose, and yet the shogunate who are governing nominally in the name of the emperor, prevaricate. They don't know what to do. You know, where has this great samurai spirit gone? We're, 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 we're 50 years after um, this resurgence of what's called national learning, um, uh, um, where they're harking back to the past. So, yes, you have the samurai who are loyal to the shogunate, to the military, who want to kick the foreigners out, and there are lots of attacks on foreigners at this time. But equally, you have a whole lot who are loyal to the emperor, um, who had always been closeted away, had never taken part in decisions. Um, and it's it's an extraordinarily disturbed time. The Japanese were and really... the emperor wasn't making much of a show of facing up to the foreigners, is it? Uh, the, the, the emperor, would, would, was, as I say, was closeted away. He wouldn't be, you wouldn't be allowed to see the emperor. I mean, part of the, 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 the governance during the Tokugawa period was that, actually, who protected the emperor? Um, yeah, there was a lot of fighting to see who would guard the emperor in Kyoto. Um... So, yeah, I mean, an extremely disturbed time. Um, but the samurai were not living up to their ideals, which actually contributed towards their downfall, effectively. Can I just go back to something you said, because it was fascinating? Uh, they thought that the Westerners, barbarians, they didn't like their manners. Can you give us a few examples of what they didn't <laughs> like? <laughs> well, for a start, they thought they were smelly. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, touch grabbing a hand, saying hello, that was totally uncommon in Japan at that time. So everything that uh, included body contact or keeping one's shoes on, um, smoking, uh, while that was a very old tradition in Japan as well. Apparently the tobaccos the Westerners used at that time were not very much liked by the Japanese. So the, the most... Um, interesting or stereotypical image that emerged is that of smelliness mm -hmm. of the Westerners, yeah. Mm -hmm. What part are the samurai playing in try to... There's got obviously some resistance and some reaction. The Americans come in 1853, the ports are opened in 1858, and you have um, 1858, 1859, and then you have these um, butter-smelling barbarians. Um, dairy does nothing for personal hygiene at this point. Um, and it takes 10 years for the whole thing to, to collapse. Basically, you have a samurai group against a samurai group, and eventually the shogunate falls. In 1868, Japan has its coup d'etat, which in retrospect is actually a revolution. Um, the irony here, of course, is that the elite is revolutionary, which means that it's not like the French, so we don't call it a revolution. But when that resolution comes about, then very quickly the samurai, who had been frustrated, as Greg said, they have a purpose, and their purpose is to build a modern state, a modern state along Western lines, not, not an indiscriminate copying of the West, but something which borrows and adapts and adopts, um, and, and they succeed. Yeah. This, of course, just to push it forward a little bit, doesn't happen without reactions. There's, there are samurai, um, there's a very famous hero, one of the, one of the f fated heroes in, in, in Japanese history who resists. There are samurai battles against the erosion of their privileges for the first 10 years. So there's a military resistance from the samurai, from some of the samurai, against the other samurai who are now running the modernizing state. And then there's a cultural resistance, a cultural reaction, if you like, which emerges in the 1880s against too much westernization and then a search for something that might be authentically Japanese. In 1876, the samurai as a class are officially abolished. They're not allowed to carry their swords. They're no longer a recognised caste. And you then get huge economic problems because 
they no longer live. What are they going to live on? Their stipends have gone. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are paid off in lump sums, but they all have to find new employment of some sort or another. There was a book, um, Bushido, The Soul of Japan. That massively influenced the Western imagination of the samurai. Um, this was written by a man called Nitobe Inazo, uh, who was one of the first Japanese to be completely fluent in English, um, learned, lived for a long time in the States, more to the point became under secretary general of the League of Nations between 1920 and 1926. And one of his, he considered it to be one of his missions Um, to be an educator and to educate the West about Japanese culture and what he considered to be authentically Japanese. He was also a Christian and a firm Christian uh, believer. And so he sets about writing this little book um, about the soul of the Japanese, so the soul of the samurai Bushido the way of the warrior. And it was written in English. It went through I don't know, 27 reprints already in the early 20th century. It is probably really in the early 20th century one of the best-known books about Japan, together with Okakura's book, Tea. Mm -hmm. And it was still quite often used in the West, especially also after the Second World War, as it were to make sense of the Japanese, both as enemies but but also as a culture. Angus, as I understand it, after all this, from the 12th century onwards. When the, Japan's looking for a national identity, they've gone out and, and absorbed the West to quite an... We're skipping by the... To quite an extraordinary degree. And then they conquer, they beat Russia, in, and that shakes the West to its roots. It's, suddenly this place has woken up, and it, it, it's taking on this great country, Russia. Um, they're still... They're, it seems to me, from what I've heard, they're trying to form their identity still a lot around the samurai. It's only really later, um, a little bit in the 20s, but then in the 30s, that you begin to get a very defensive nationalism, which looks for the exceptional things in Japan's past. And, of course, at that point, in as much as you're fighting already in China and you're going to fight America, it's pretty clear to everybody, that the samurai become the thing to which one attaches the military tradition, to animate a present where Japan is seen to be under threat. So I think one has to be um, a little careful about saying there's a, there's a continuous evolution. It's those moments when Japan has to retreat into itself that the samurai become a motivating kind of cultural myth. Can we use the sword as, as a way through this last period? The samurai sword, well, you, you say a few words about it, because uh, yeah, it I was mean, an the, extraordinary... Instrument. Yes, I mean, I mean, it's it, it, it's a fabulous weapon, and as, as I said earlier on, it's both it's both a symbol and an actual weapon. And during Japan's um, imperialist expansion period, all officers, all NCOs would carry swords. Um, the officers would probably have um, well-made swords. Uh, the, the, the myth of carrying a family heirloom into battle, I think, should be shattered. You wouldn't want to take a family heirloom into battle. You might wear it at command headquarters and so on. But yeah. The sword was made for all NCOs. And you, you, you get a sort of corruption of Bushido at this time. You, you get this harking back to the, you know, the 17th century, the romantic view, where Miyamoto Musashi said that the way of the warrior lies in the resolute acceptance of death. And this is instilled into the conscript army in the imperialist yes. period. You will die for your emperor because it's a great and glorious thing, carrying the sword. Nitobe's book on Bushido became then part of compulsory education in the 1930s in Japan. So by that time it had been translated into Japanese. So first a book that is sent out to 
affect cross-cultural understanding then becomes a text that will be used for propaganda in Japan. Can I just, before you come in, Angus, and we're coming towards the end of the program now, it is curious, isn't it, they're stripped of their swords in the uh, last quarter of the 19th century, uh, and then the swords are brought back. They wear them as they climb into these uh, aeroplanes, the kamikaze. They appliance. wear them for the Photoshop. One should be very clear here. There's a very media-savvy propaganda arm of the Japanese army, and but in, indeed the, the, the cockpit of the fighters that they're flying um, won't allow them to wear swords yeah. inside. But um, for the propaganda at the time, there's one famous magazine called Front, mm. issued in multiple mm. European languages, where this becomes the defining image. But the officers like to wear them on parades, and they're allowed to wear them again, aren't they? Mm. Yes, to, to a certain extent, and, ev- and even in uh, infantry battles. I mean, you can't get them into a cockpit, but you can certainly take them into, not to put too fine so a point overall, on it, China. despite yes. the photo opportunity, when they get a chance to wear the swords, even going into battle, let alone ceremony, they will go back to the sword again. Yeah. Yes, because by this point, this this myth, the translation of Nitobe, the the kind of search for some desperate kind of authenticity in the past, has has, has reached its height. Japan is at that point isolated, and needs to assert a unique identity in the world. Um, what what uh, what intrigued me was that after the war, just after the war in forty seven forty eight, the first big exhibition put on by the museum in was it in Tokyo? Tokyo. Yeah. The Tokyo w- National. This is a wonderful. Was devoted to the sword. Yeah. Well, there's there's a there's an it, this is an interesting deflating perhaps and and somewhat rude epilogue, but. Um, the Americans come into Japan in 1945, and um, the thing they're trying to do, at least initially, before they make them a Cold War partner, is to demilitarize. And so one of the first things they want to do is pe- make sure there's no resistance and people don't have access to military material. And so they have a sword hunt. It's the second or third sword hunt in Japanese history. And, of course, this causes consternation because there are family heirlooms mm. that are now threatened. And so very quickly you get an association forming which... Um, remakes the sword into an aesthetic object. And so when Which the it national... Always was, actually, I must say. It always yeah. was, but there's a, there's a conscious demilitarization and aestheticization at this time. And so this association forms, there's a debate with the occupation authorities. When the Tokyo National Museum reopens, the first special exhibition is called The Art of the Japanese Sword. Mm. And at that point, you no longer have an army, but you have an icon mm. instead. Mm. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. Scootin, thank you, Angus Lockyer and Gregory Irvin. Next week we'll be talking about um, Mary Wollstonecraft, a great original thinker of the British Enlightenment, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this BBC podcast, why not try others such as Start the Week, the Radio 4 discussion programme where Andrew Marr sets the cultural agenda for the next seven days. To find out more, visit bbc.co.uk forward slash podcasts.